0: Amen. Church, let me ask you a question and I will, oh yes, thank you. Kids, kids class uh, can head back. Carol's going to be taking the kids back to do a lesson, uh, kindergarten and up. Um, Can we just give Carol a quick thank you? (laughs) And And if you hear a yell from back there, somebody else go help her. There are a lot of kids today. Okay, um, so hey, I want to ask you a question, and by your, I, I want your answer. Do you love Jesus? Yes. Thank you, some of you guys got that, yes. Do, let me ask again, do you love Jesus? Okay, yes. how much? A lot. A, a lot, thank you whoever said a lot. Big much, excellent. All right, let me ask you another question, what else do you love? Cheese. <laughs> It's a harder question, so you don't really know what to shout out. That's probably good, because your next question is going to make things a little bit more difficult. Let me ask you this. Right? You, you said you love Jesus, and I, I assume most of us in this room do. Uh, we also know that we love other things. Let me ask, does, does the love for other things ever compete with your love for Jesus? Thank you for being honest, Joseph. We like being honest here at Calvary. We are all of us. All of us in, in some way in this boat, and, um, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. See, because we, I hope we would all be lovers of Jesus. I hope that every one of us would just would love, Jesus, we would love God. I, and I pray that even as we love many other things, we're called to love many other things, that those things would land under our love for God and not in competition with our love for God. We're in the book of James right now, and James is writing to Christians, or at least those who are claiming to be Christians. He's writing to a church, and in this church, you can just guess there's some serious issues going on, because James has some harsh words for him. We've been, for the last three weeks, working through James chapter 3, we're now in James chapter 4, and what we have seen is that there has been a flow from and through all of this. This is one big giant unit of the book of James. We break it out into some other weeks just because you, most of you will not listen to a four-hour sermon. I would love to preach a four-hour sermon if you ever give me the chance. But we don't do that because it doesn't quite work. But what we've seen is that there has been a flow from from words at the beginning of chapter 3 into wisdom and understanding, Um, the end of chapter 3 to the actions that come from both our words and our wisdom, and now we're going to be flowing from there into repentance today. And this is a good thing, because I expect over the last few weeks, and really even if you haven't been here the last few weeks, You know if you love Jesus that there is a competition in your soul as Joseph admitted to just a few minutes ago and there are multiple loves that we have and there is a competition there and none of us even if we want to actually do love Jesus with our whole selves all the time. Some of us manage much of the time but I'm not sure any of us can manage it all the time which means we need repentance. We need to come before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm I'm a sinner and I have messed up. I have sinned. I have fallen short of what you want for me, what you meant for me. I am not living the life that you called me to. And we plead with him to receive us. As we turn, that's what repentance means, we turn from all those other ways and we turn into Christ to look at him. One of the themes that we've seen all the way through chapter 3 and it continues through this chapter is this idea of being double-minded. And the, the picture that we have in that is, is of someone, it could be you or I, who are kind of living two lives, Right, we may say something and then to one group of people and we say something to somebody else, or we say something and do something else, or we speak praises to God with our mouths, but at the same time we curse our neighbors who are created in the image of God. That's the language we see in James chapter 3. So I want to read our, our passage for today, and you should just take note that this is one of the harshest passages in the New Testament. In fact, I might say, aside from where Jesus says some things to some Pharisees, and the moment when Jesus looks at Peter and says, get behind me, Satan, um, this passage, I think, may be one of the most harsh, if not the harshest moments. Here's what it says. It says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Verse 4, let me just say, it says, you adulterous people. Now the literal language there is you adulteresses. It is an accusation that is being made. And here's the deal. It's being made against the bride of Christ. If you're married and you have an affair, then you are an adulterer or an adulteress. And that's the image that we're given here. This is really where the harshness comes out right there. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? So if you're a friend with the world, then, then you're at war with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scriptures say he yearns jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell in us? But he gives, okay, here, I'm going to just pause. Because this right here is where the, the harsh tone turns into something beautiful. He says, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. And then verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Church, can we claim to be saved if Jesus is not demonstrated in our lives? Can we claim to be saved if there is nothing good flowing from us? No. This essentially is the message of the book of James. And that does not mean, as we often have to say and remind ourselves, that we are saved by what we do. But rather, what we do flows out of who we are. As sinners, what we do flows out in sin. As saints, those who have been redeemed by Christ through faith, not of our own works, we are saved, we are made into new creations, and the lives that we live after that come from our salvation. So our works come from what we are. And what we are is made into new creations by Christ through his gift. And there's a beauty in that that we always need to remind ourselves for. Some of us have spent our lives trying to work to pay the Lord for our salvation. Or some of us have spent our lives trying to be as good as we can that, that God might receive us. But he receives sinners. He receives those who haven't come to him. He receives those and he draws us to himself by his own love, his own strength. He gives us the faith that we need in order to believe. So I will just say and be really clear if you are a Christian and there is no sign of the life flowing out of you of Christ, then you're not. And you should question whether or not the moment that you look back upon was real. Now let me just say real quick, we should look at everything in the, in the passage, and I wish we could, <laughs> as I sat down, I started reading this passage, and I was like, wow, I've got six sermons here, bam, we're going to spend the rest of the year in this, and that's not what we're going to do today. There's so much good stuff in this, and, and we really could. We could spend 30 to 40 minutes on like every three verses easy. But I think one of the things that can happen in that is you kind of miss how it's all flowing together, how it's all working. And so we're not going to do that. We are going to look at this in one chunk in five points. Okay? Five points. We're going to look first at the sin of double mindedness. Okay? Then we're going to move to the signs of double-mindedness or the symptoms you might say then we're going to look at the seriousness of double-mindedness followed by the salvation of the double-minded and then last the solution for the double-minded I'll repeat that as we go back through so you don't need to remember it now so let's start with the sins of double-mindedness. Now, I just want to draw our attention back through all these passages because this has been the whole theme of this whole section. Verse 6 of chapter 3, here's what it says, the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and is set on fire by hell. What well, we looked at at that point was that that our tongue is it can be this fire I mean, it is a fire, that's what the Bible says it is, but it's either going to burn in one or two directions, right? It's either going to burn in the direction of sin or it's going to burn in the direction of of holiness in God. It is going to become a powerful force of destruction or a powerful force of redemption and repair. Okay, in verse 9, what we saw is that there is a tongue that worships God but also curses people made in the image of God. And he says, this really should not be. This is the image of double-minded, right? Where we're one thing and then we're another thing. And in verse 15, or sorry, in verse 12, I want to read this for us. Going back to this, not all of us were here. It says, can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives? Or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. What James is saying there is that if you are a salt pond, you are not going to be fresh water. Right? If you are a fig tree you're not producing grapes and vice versa. We can only produce one kind of fruit. This goes back to being double-minded, right? If you can't be two things. That's kind of the point of being double-minded. The Christian who is double-minded has a real big problem because the Christian is only allowed to be single-minded. One as God is one. So to be double-minded, what does this look like? I've already said a few of these. Let me just say them again, move through this. You say one thing and do another. You say, man, I love God. But then your words with other people might be different. Right, so you say one thing, or sorry, I'm going to do one thing. So you say, I love God, but then you do Something like you love you, you love something else. Or so I I love God and I love beer. I love God and I love dope. I love God and I love pornography. I love God and I love and you could just I mean you can just keep going. And the point is, is you say one thing, but but you do another. You 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 have two loves when God deserves all your love. All right. You are a different person in different places with different people. All right. So for some of you, you are like church person when you're here, right? Who you are is welcoming and, and loving and, and you're good at and you want to talk, you want to talk about Jesus, and you love singing praises, but then Monday morning you're at work and your coworkers don't even know that you went to church on Sunday. So they don't even know that you think about Jesus by your words, by your actions, by the things you talk about, the jokes you make, the laughter you make at their jokes. Right? You're a different person in different places. Some of this, you know, you're one thing here at church, but you're another thing in your family. Right here, man, you're the gentlest person ever, but at home you are angry. This is what it is to be double-minded. Another one, you're one thing in public and another thing in private, okay? You're one thing in public, you're another thing in private. So again, you, you are what you are and maybe it's not limited to church. Maybe it's everywhere. Maybe who you are at church is who you are at home and who you are in your workplace. But man, something else comes out when you're alone at night at one o'clock in the morning and your spouse is asleep. Here's another one. Your Christianity happens to be a chore. It's something you must do. Something you have to do. But it's not something that you take joy in. Your faith is, I've got to do this thing. I've got to do And you, you buckle down and you do it. But then the reality is, is you'd really maybe rather be doing something else. I mean, we all have those chores that never get done because... There's other things to do, right? Whether those are other chores to do or whether or those are fun things to do. I mean, my wife, if we were on, we look at each other like, there are a million chores that never get done until we start like tripping over things or somebody gets sick, right? <laughs> because it's just bad. Because there's other things to do. Some of us, our faith is exactly like that. There's double mindedness. For some of us, we like the idea of Jesus but we are not willing to make him the Lord of our lives. That's to be double-minded, right? If you've been saved, but have not made Jesus your Lord, then then that is the definition of double-mindedness because we're not singularly focused on on him. Okay, out of this comes uh, something we just need to come to grips with, and that is the double-minded have impure motives, and we see that really directly in this passage, and I want to bring us there real quick. In verse 3, it says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions, okay? When the Bible uses the word wrongly, it's, I think it's actually better translated, but it's really awkward in English. It, it actually means evilly. <laughs> so you ask evilly <laughs> to spend it on your pleasures, there are a lot of things church that we love about God. There are a lot of things that we want from God and on the one hand we, 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 we desire it because it seems like a good thing but at its heart it's not about God. It's not about God's glory. What it is about is us and I'm going to be honest pastors really struggle with this. Do you know that? Right, I pray, we pray all the time that lost people will be found, right? We pray all the time that that people would come to the church. Well, do you know that sometimes I have to ask myself the question, do I want people to come to this church because I want us to be big and I want me to have a great name or because I actually want to see them know Jesus? Now, I'll be honest, most of the time when I ask that question to myself, it is really truly about the salvation of souls and the glory of God. But there are times... When I'm struggling, there are times when, when I'm not so sure that's the answer. There are weeks when we're pretty low in church for whatever reason, Half of you decide to stay home or do something, it's like, man, this is unfortunate. Right? And you start thinking weird things and bad things and, and whatnot. I'm just laying out my own struggle in some of this. The thing is we all have impure motives at times, but that's what it means to be double-minded one commentator and on this talked about turning god into a vending machine for our self gratification do your prayers reflect the idea that basically you turn to god when you need something want something and that's really the only time you're like put your quarters in the machine punch in the numbers get what you want move on think about most of the food out of a vending machine it's it's junk it's junk It's not going to give you any any sustenance, any nutrients. It's just going to fill your belly for a little bit and then be gone. So let me ask you a question. When you think about your own faith, your own salvation, when you think about the work you do for the Lord, what are your motives? What are your motives? Let me ask this. Is it all about you? Is it all about you? This is a question that we need to look at. As we study James chapter 4, this is a question we should be asking because that's what he's saying to them. He's saying, hey, look, you're asking, it's all about you when you finally do ask for what you want. Who is this all for? I've, I've noticed a pattern. I've seen this in my own life lately, and, it, it, and I love it. Okay, I'm going to be honest. I have not been here all the time or for even maybe very long But let me, I'm going to get to that. How long is, how long is your being saved about you? When you think about it. How long is your getting saved about you? It's kind of a weird question. But let me say it like this or or point something out. When we become Christians, man, it's amazing, right? First of all, in the very least, we aren't going to go to hell. If you're saved, you're not going to get all. That's amazing, right? I rejoice in that for me. Then you start to discover that like, you have a best friend in Jesus and he's there for you all the time. This is awesome. And then you discover that the Holy Spirit's living in you and empowering you to live faithfully. Oh man, this is so great. But there's a lot of people who that's where it ends. Right? Their salvation, they rejoice in being saved. They rejoice that they're there, but it stops there. The thing is, our salvation is lastly about us. Okay? Our salvation is first about the glory of God. It's about him receiving glory and praise from people such as us sinners who have no desire to worship him, being turned and changed into worshipers of God. That's the most important part of our salvation. It's the most important part of our salvation. From there, we start mixing ourselves in with another reality. And men's men's group talked about this yesterday. You know, when we are saved, 2 Corinthians 5 tells us that we become new creations. Given the ministry of reconciliation, we become ambassadors for Christ. 2 Corinthians 5 does not tell us that any of that is for us. It is for who? First the glory of God and then all those that we might minister to and serve and bring into the kingdom of God to become new creations themselves, reconcilers in ministry, and ambassadors for Christ. Church, our salvation should not be about us. Our service to the Lord should not be about how great it makes us feel. Let me say this again. I love being saved. I love having spirit. I love being communion of God. Church, here's another blessing. I love being a part of this church. I also love being a part of the church globally. Man, there are moments and times when it's like you meet somebody out in the world. You're like, man, we are part of one body and we are just together. This is awesome. Here's another question. Do you love Jesus or do you love the benefits of being near Jesus? Do you love Jesus or do you love what he gives us as his children more? So let me, I want to I say, say this, and I think this should be our, our posture. This is where the Lord has brought me recently. And whether it's because I basically sat in the mountains for like three months and prayed and spent a lot of time with him. Thank you, by the way. Y'all sent me to be able to do that. Our days may start by praising the Lord for what he's done in our lives, but they should end on our knees, crying out to him to rescue lost people around us. We may think and pray on what he's done for us, but that should cause us to look around us and realize that most of the people we meet on any given week are going to hell apart from him. We should start each prayer just exalting in who God is and thanking Him for what He's done. But they should end, our prayers should end by crying out for those who don't know Him yet for the glory of God so that they would see Him and know Him and be saved and find life. Church, as we sing songs here in, in the sanctuary, as we praise we, we lift our voices high, whether in, in hymns or spiritual songs or, or whatever, Right, we lift and we just recognize how great God is. There should be a part of us that as we do so, we recognize that, that man, there are people who don't know this stuff. There are people who don't know God. They don't know that they have a chance to become new. Now, let me just say, if your heart doesn't break for the lost as you lift your Honest praises praises and rejoicing to the Lord. Then I worry about you. Because you may be (laughs) double-minded. You're not focused on the one thing. All right, so that's the sin of double-mindedness. What are the signs of double-mindedness we see in our passage here? Verse 4, chapter 1. What causes quarrels and fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Verse 2, you desire, do not have, because you do not ask. Okay? And then you get to the motive part that we already read. The first sign of double-mindedness is internal conflict. Okay, it says it right here, what causes fights and quarrels among you? That word for among you is actually in you. Right? And, it, and, it, and it, it's talking about In you Now, that can be taken two ways, of course, right? Because if it's talking to me as an individual Christian, then it's talking about what's happening here. On the other hand, it might be talking to the body of Christ or to a church in a given location. And it's saying, all right, what's causing fights and quarrels among you, okay? As so often with Scripture, I believe James has both views in mind, right? He's saying, hey, look, there is a fight and a quarrel among you, in you. And it is causing this, right? Your passions, he says, are at war within you. This, this word here, passions, is the word hedone, which is where the modern word hedonism comes from. Hedonism is the ethical theory that pleasure and gratification is the highest good and proper aim of human life. Let me just tell you, as Christians, we don't get to be this, <laughs> Okay? The highest aim of human life is not our pleasure and gratification. There are many in our culture who believe this, who live this way. We cannot be among them. The passions that drive us, the things that are at war within us, right? We, we, we love God, but man, we really love everything else too. And there's this conflict going on in us. This war is waging inside of us. As opposed to the one who single-mindedly, who looks to God and loves God and everything else they love falls under God or falls away. Okay, here's the picture. We love God first. If you're married, you love your spouse next. Okay? You have kids, you love your kids next, your church is next. (laughs) And then you can start debating about what's after that. Okay? Let me just say this really quickly though. You may notice like, God, spouse, kids, church. If you don't have a spouse or kids, interestingly enough, what's next? The church. The people who are supposed to be, according to Scripture, part of the body of Christ, your new family as Christians. Work, fun things, hobbies, all that stuff starts falling down below that. But if, if all of your other loves are under the umbrella of God, right? God is your first love. Everything else falls under that. What happens when you suddenly realize that you love lust? Is that under the umbrella? No. That's got to be outside the umbrella falling away. Right? What happens when you love your anger? What happens when you love? And by love, right, say, well, who loves their anger? Anybody who holds on to it. Anybody who holds on to it. Church, if there's a sin in your life that you hold on to, you love it. We hold on to things we love. We grip them until we can't possibly, you know, hold on to them anymore. And so if there is a love in your life that will not fit under the umbrella of God and God's holiness, guess what? That thing is supposed to fall away. Bible tells us that we're supposed to put it to death. Fall away is a little bit light on the language. That we should be putting these things to death. All right, so what we see it's that single-mindedness can include all of this other great stuff, but it does not include all the not great stuff, all the bad stuff, okay? So we see internal conflict. That's the first sign. Then what do we see? We see external conflict. Man, when we are at war in ourselves, what always happens? It erupts around us. It erupts to those that we love, those that we serve, those that we care for, and those that we just happen to be standing near at any given time. We talked a lot about this last week and the week before, as in, in anger and what that looks like. And as we talked about the worldly wisdom, external conflict. Everything around you always seems to be a fight. There's just war and disruption and chaos everywhere you go. Dumbled-mindedness so often comes down to who or what this is all about. Because we're at war in ourselves, we end up being at war with everybody around us. The thing is, it's because it's all about us, right? It goes back to our motives. If I think everything's about me, including my faith, including how I experience my faith, the things I like in my faith, the the, the kinds of music, the everything, all this stuff. If I think it's all about me and the guy next to me thinks the same thing and the woman on the other side thinks the same thing, then what's going to happen? There are going to be some serious fights and quarrels. And that's the thing. I've been around churches for a very long time. I'm a PK. I grew up a pastor's kid. I've been serving churches since I was 18 which is more than half my life. And I have seen this in church. I don't see it very often in this church, if I'm honest. Which is pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> we had one church where Betsy wasn't even allowed to go to members meetings because she would just yell at people. And she wasn't the problem. <laughs> okay? Okay? When I think about this and I, I think about this passage, uh, I just have to wonder if James is looking at this and like, was there, some, was there a members meeting, right? And somebody was like, you know what? We should have blue carpet. And somebody else is like, no, we should have red carpet. And suddenly the church was splitting. Did you know the churches have split over the color of carpet in the sanctuary? Or maybe the fight is about the mess the kids make in the coffee area. Right? One group of people says, hey, we've got kids. This is awesome. I'll vacuum. It'll be okay. Another group says, no, we need to protect everything. Right? And all of a sudden, the church splits and all the young families go one way and everybody else goes another way. Or maybe somebody just grabbed up the last homemade cookie at the potluck. (laughs) You know you've been in line and you've been eyeing those cookies or that last piece of chicken or whatever else, and the person ahead of you takes two, and they're gone. <laughs> right? Here's your, I, I'm making a little bit of light about this right now because, because it's real. Okay? Because it's real. It's real. <laughs> and this actually lands us in the next point, um, and that's the seriousness of double-mindedness. Okay? I'm making light of it now because we're about to get real harsh here. The seriousness of double-mindedness, right? We, as we get into into James, here's what it's going to tell us. Um, This is pretty strong. Verse 2, you desire and do not have so you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Just pause on that language for a minute and remember that James is writing to people who believe they're saved, to Christians. And he's saying, hey, look, you want, you can't have, so you murder people. And you fight and you quarrel, you covet from each other. Now, there's a great question whether or not this is a bit of a hyperbole or if like, you know, if somebody actually did get killed over a cookie at the members' meeting, does it matter whether it was real murder or just somebody really was angry? I mean, Jesus says when we hate someone in our hearts, that we have committed murder against them. James is being real clear in his language here. This is not good. This is terrible. So, whether somebody has actually caught, committed violence against another church person or not, it doesn't really matter. Because the point is, is that when we are double minded when everything is about us and our own motives, ugly things happen. So he moves from that language. I want to jump down to verse 4, and I've already pointed this out. He says, you adulterous people. You adulterous people. I got to tell you, if if somebody, particularly somebody I love, say my spouse, like got home one day and said, you adulterous man! I would be crushed. Because even if it's not true, I'm being accused of something harsh. God looks at his people over and over and over again in the Old Testament and he says, you adulterous people. I mean, and, and when you read the Old Testament, you, you get into it, and they have every reason to do everything right. God is doing miracles all over the place. He's doing amazing things. I look at King Solomon. I was blown away by this. I studied this extensively when I was, when I was gone. King Solomon, at the beginning of his reign, God comes to him and says, Solomon, I'm going to do everything for you. Just ask whatever you want. I'll give it to you. I'm going to bless you forever. The people that come out of you, this is going to be amazing. Solomon asked for wisdom. Great. God gives him riches and power and all this stuff. But at the end of his life, Solomon is turning away. And God says, what was going to be blessing is now curse. He could say to Solomon, you adulterous man. Over and over again in the prophets, what you see is they say, thus saith the Lord, you adulterous people. Your groom has loved you. God has loved you. But all you are is a harlot, a prostitute, selling yourself for nothing. This is the language James is using, okay? This is not my language. We need to hear this. Because it goes back to the covenantal language in the Old Testament That God is the groom and the nation of Israel is his bride, his loved one, his cherished one. He's done everything for her and yet she still turns away. And then church, this is really hard. Because in the New Testament, this, this goes even deeper. Jesus becomes the groom and his church, the bride. And here James is writing a letter to the church of Christ and he says, You adulterous people. You adulterous people. And they have turned away. They're not living for God for whatever reason. They're living for all kinds of other stuff. At the heart of all of this is idolatry. That's the accusation that's being made all through the Old Testament. The nation of Israel kept over and over going to other nations' gods. I mean, they've got God Almighty, the creator of all things, and they're over here worshiping a cow. The next bit of language leads us right into this. Verse 5, do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says? Now, if someone ever says to you, hey, do you think the scriptures say this for no reason? (laughs) The answer is, no, of course. The scriptures, everything they say is for a reason. Then he says this, God opposes the, sorry, I I jumped verses. He yearns jealously over the spirit that he made to dwell in us. He says, do you think it's to no purpose that the scriptures say to you that he, God, yearns jealously for the spirit that he placed in us? The scriptures tell us that all the time, that God yearns jealously. He gets jealous. Now, in our human understanding, jealousy is usually a pretty bad thing. But I got I to gotta tell you, if someone's spouse sleeps with someone else, their spouse is fully justified in whatever jealousy they feel, right? If your wife, if your husband cheats on you, you feel justified in whatever jealousy you have. And guess what? That's a holy jealousy. They did something with someone else they're only supposed to do with you. And so here's God. He says, you're in jealously for you. I made you. I created you. I've rescued you. I've saved you. I married you. You are my spouse. And you just cheated on me with anything around. Again, we're talking about the seriousness of double-mindedness. Okay? Then we move on to friendship with the world. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. All right, at the end of verse 4, he said, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God, right? He's saying, hey, look, you're trying to be friends with the world, and you're trying to be friends with God. But if you are truly friends with the world, then you will not be friends with God. What does this mean? I mean, we're supposed to like the world, right? We're supposed to love the world in, in caring for them, leading them to Jesus. He's not talking about that kind of thing. He's going say, hey, look, you live for the world. If you live for the world, then you're not living for Jesus. If your, if your motives are all about you, the things you can get, then, then you don't love God. That's what he's saying. You cannot be friends with both. You cannot. It just goes back to the same argument that he made at the end or the middle of chapter 3. Does a spring pour forth the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree my brothers bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. It's the same argument. You can't produce two things. You can't be friends with both. This right here is, I actually think, where we see the most of the seriousness of the sin of double mindedness. Because at the start of this message, we all said, I think, all of us said together, we love God. But we also know, we also know that we have other loves too. Churches can't be. All right, so the seriousness of that moves. Praise the Lord to the salvation for the double-minded, okay? If you have been only paying attention, you're like starting to check out because it's been a little bit rough, guess what? Verse 6 says, but he gives more grace. Can we just pause? Five words right there in English. But he gives more grace. But he gives more grace. But he gives more grace more grace. I just want to point something out really quick here because everything we've said so far has been really awful, really hard, really heavy. And then the scriptures do what the scriptures do. And they land us in this beautiful place. Because here's the deal. These people are not good at single-mindedness. And James says, that doesn't matter. What matters is is that God gives more grace. More grace than what? More grace than what? Well, church, everything. Okay, there's a reason why James doesn't include a, a subject or an object here more than this. His point is, is that no matter how double-minded we have been, he is just going to give us more grace. This is the God we worship and serve and love. Most of us, this is why we love him and serve him and worship him. He gives us more grace than what? Than everything. Greater than our sin. Greater than our double-mindedness. Greater than what we think we are or what we have been. Greater than... When you go to lunch today, somebody might ask you, hey, what'd you guys talk about at church today? You can say we talked about double-mindedness or you can say, hey, we talked about how God gives more grace than everything. This is the salvation for those who are double-minded because here's the deal. Double-minded people aren't saved. They don't love God alone. They love other things too. And if you love other things, you don't love God. This is the grace, the salvation for those who are double-minded. Hear this really well because he's talking to double-minded people when he says, but he gives more grace. If you're sitting here thinking, man, you know what? I am a double-minded person. When Pastor Matt went through that list at the beginning, I was like, check, 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 check. Guess what? He gives more grace than that. And he's giving you more grace right now than that. He gives grace more grace. This is the salvation for the double-minded. It is not, the salvation for the double-minded is not that we figure out how to be single-minded. It is that he gives us the grace to be saved. Okay? That's the salvation. That is the salvation for the double-minded. I would love to end there, but I don't get to yet. Because then we land in the what did I call it? <laughs> the solution for the double-minded. Okay? And here's where we, uh, we, we burn through a whole bunch of past scripture here. Starting in verse 6. But he gives more grace, therefore it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. It says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded, be wretched and mourn and weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. All right, so what is the solution, right? And hear this well, the salvation has nothing to do with us. nothing to do with us and everything to do with him, but the solution that then comes out of that, what he calls us to. Here's what he says. He says, first be humble. Verse six, be humble. Humble yourself. What does it mean to humble yourself? You put yourself in the right spot. Okay, humility before God recognizes who he is and who we are. And in case you haven't been paying attention, he is everything. And we are not (laughs) to submit ourselves to God in humbleness means to put him where he is. Who is he? He is Lord. He's in charge. Amen. All right, so he says, be humble. Next thing he says is resist the devil, and he will flee from you. This, This is a powerful bit of scripture. For any of us who have ever faced temptation or direct spiritual warfare, or attack from the enemy. The promise in Scripture, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Now, let me just point out, it does not tell you when, or how long, or how soon. Some of us, we resist the devil, and then it gets a little bit harder, and we're like, ah, all right, we'll give in. But if we would just maintain our resistance, the devil will flee from you. Now, this is a really interesting question. How do we resist the devil? It's really easy. It tells us through this whole bit of the scripture. We, we need to get close to Jesus. By your own, by your own strength, who you are cannot resist the devil. He is stronger than you are. But if Jesus is at your right hand, right? He's got his arm around you, which, your old hands with Jesus. Guess what? He resists Jesus. He's going to flee from jesus guys the way we resist the devil is to get really close to god because the devil's not going anywhere near god one of my favorite things i noticed in the book of revelation is that when the final battle finally comes did you know that god doesn't even show up he doesn't he sends one of his angels and bam the whole thing is done the devil is not god's counterpart He's not his equal. He is a created being. He's nothing in comparison to God. Church, if we want to resist the devil, guess what? We need to be close to God. Interestingly enough, it tells us in verse 8, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. The cool thing just pay attention to this, is that he's already done all the work so that we can draw near to him. The salvation comes first and then we draw near to God. Did you know that when you sin and come before Jesus and go to him, he does not run away from you? We talked about this in Sunday school today. From the book Gentle and Lowly that we're studying, Right? God is a God. He receives sinners who come to him. He wants us to come to him. He doesn't look at us and be like, oh, you are ugly in your sin. Stay away from me. He doesn't do that. He says, come to me. Come to me. Okay? Verse 8, it also tells us to cleanse our hands, purify our hearts, and to be wretched. Now this goes straight back again to Old Testament prophetic language. When the prophets would call out the sin of the nation of Israel, they would tell them to, wear, to, to wash their hands and wash their bodies and to wear sackcloth and to mourn and weep. This is the posture of, that happens. and I, This is the posture you should have. If you're a Christian and you sin, this should be where we are. And we say, oh, I have sinned, Lord. I have sinned. I have fallen short. And we, we, we mourn that. We should. He adds to that, he says, Let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy into weeping. Have you ever met a Christian who rejoiced in their sin? Bragged about it? I have. I mean, just took joy in, in the sin they were living. That is the opposite posture. Church, when we recognize our sin, we are called to to lower. We're called to to weep and to mourn and to wail because we have done something against God that should not be done. This is the the solution that's before us. Maybe today you've come before Jesus and you're saying, wow, I have loved Jesus, but man, I am double-minded. Church, we have an opportunity right now together to mourn and to weep and to wail, to be wretched before him. We do together. And I gotta tell you, if that's you, then then, then you're in a great place. Because it's most of us. It's all of us. I mean maybe you're brand new to Calvary today, you're like Man, these people are messed up. Yeah, we are. Amen. We all are. If you're messed up, then welcome home. Because we get to do this together. Okay, we get to do this together. So this is what we see, right? We need, to, we need to go to God in humbleness. We need to resist the devil by getting close to God and we need to cleanse our hands. We need to purify our hearts. We need to be wretched, to weep, mourn, wail, turn our laughter to mourning and our joy to weeping. And that is the end of the story, right, church? No. Thanks, Zane, Hannah. No. For some of us, this is the end of the story. We sin. Right? We look at porn for the seven hundredth time, or we fall back into whatever substance addiction we have, or we get angry at our kids another time, even though we resolve that we wouldn't do that, or we steal or something. I don't know what. I don't know what you do. I mean, we we do. We mourn and we weep and we wail. Some of us grew up in churches where basically, when you sin, man, it is done. You're done. Some of us, on the other hand, we don't do any of those things. We sin and we're like, la-di-da. And we go on with life. But what we see here in the solution is this pattern that causes us to humble ourselves and come before Jesus and, and be mourned and, and, and wretched and, and turn our mourning, our joy into mourning, all these things. But then what does it say at the very end? Verse 10. Verse 10 Humble yourselves before the Lord, goes back to the humbleness, and he will exalt you. Christian, if you are a Christian and you sin, you are not meant to be in that place of mourning, weeping, and the gnashing of teeth, and all of those things forever. You are called to look to God who will raise you up. He will bring you beyond that. We talked about that in Sunday school today too. If you missed Sunday school today, you missed a lot. Come next week, please. Because we're talking about how great Jesus is. And it would be great if you were there. It does not end with us on our knees confessing and, being mor- and mourning and, and sorrow and being wretched. That's not where it ends. It ends with God seeing where we are and exalting us. I mean, he lifts us up. He raises us. If you've never been a Christian before, what that means is that when we come to him, he raises us to new life. But if you are a Christian and and you've been pretty double-minded and you're thinking through this and you recognize that and you come before Jesus and you confess that to Him, what does it mean? It means He's going to restore you to single-mindedness. He's going to bring you back to where you're supposed to be. Not so that you can become double-minded again but so that you would see him in all the glory and all the power and all the amazement and that he would become that single love in your life that guides and controls every other love you have. So what do we do today? First, let me just say this. If you don't know Jesus, if if you have been double-minded maybe your whole life, maybe you grew up in a church and you've been a part of churches on and off or maybe for, without ever stopping and you realize, you know what? Jesus is one love of many. Then what I want you to do is I want you to, to confess before him that you need him. That he's your Lord and Savior. And give your life to him today, which is the day of salvation. Today is always the day of salvation. Today, give your life to him. On the other hand, if you have been in church and you have been double-minded and you say, wow, what, what pastor's talking about today, man, that, that, that's me. I never do this, but I, I need you to think through this. If you've been double-minded, is your confession of faith real? Real? If you have been double-minded, if God has not been your first love for the last however many years it's been since you raised your hand at some youth event or in some church or some Sunday school class or with someone to say, I want to follow Jesus and God has not been your first love, then right now you need to think about whether or not he's ever been your love at all. And I'm not saying that he isn't. Okay, I don't want you to hear me in that. Because I think there are times when we struggle. There are times when, when, when we have wandered away, but, but he's drawn us back, okay? But there is a question about whether or not our initial conversion was even real. And if it wasn't, then today's the day of salvation. Then today is the day of salvation for you too come unto him. He will save you. He will rescue you. His grace is more. One of the things I love about that is that his grace is not only more in that for those who have never loved him and who have lived these crazy, you know, lives. His love is also more than living in churches for 80 years pretending to be a Christian. His grace is more than either one of those two things. What we've seen today is that the sin of double mindedness is serious. And he calls us away from it to life. And I pray that today you would live. Amen? Let us pray. God, we come to you and we love you. God, we know we do not always love you with our whole hearts. And Lord, I pray that you would be at work in us in this. Lord, we are sinners in need of salvation, we are saints who have been saved, who are in need of sanctification to be brought along in all of this. And God, we turn to you. I pray, Lord, that you would be at work in us, in our hearts, our lives, our minds today. As we finish out this time of worship today, Lord, I pray that you would meet with us. And God, I do pray that if there is anyone here who is not saved, who doesn't know you yet, Whether they've been in churches their whole life or it's the first time they've ever been in a church or darkened the doors of a church in a while, Lord, I pray that your spirit would speak to them and lead them to be converted, to be raised from death into life, as only you can do. God, we thank you and we praise you and we give you the glory. Amen. Amen. Church, we come now to the time of communion and this here at Calvary is something we do every week. One of the things that we want to remind us about is that this should never be a...